News. 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 New York City. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC, the pod with less tar and more flavor. I'm Harry Siegel, here as ever with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. And producer Adam Kamara. Bill de Blasio, now aiming to run for president, has had one more or less politically untarnished accomplishment, universal pre-K. He's talking a lot about it, and suddenly some of the seams from the rapid rollout of it are starting to show. We're going to take a look at what's happening there with Christina Vega of Chalkbeat. And after that, we'll have Victoria Vikempis getting on the phone with Alex Brooklyn to go inside the courts and discuss the Nexium sex cult and Smallville star Allison Mack's guilty plea, aptly described on the New York Post front page as, sorry, I kept a slave. Oops. So, Christina, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. We have this UPK, universal pre-K. Everyone in New York at once has a seat. Maybe you go to a city school. Maybe you go to a community provider. There's 3K, which is not universal. And it's the Department of Education that's running all of these, right? Not quite. So can you break down just in very broad terms what the city pre-K is and why some of the teachers involved are suddenly talking about going on strike and what distinguishes them? from the other teachers. Sure. So when Mayor Bill de Blasio rolled out his plans to make pre-K available to all four-year-olds, he wanted to do it really quickly. And in order to do that, the city had to rely on an already existing network of community providers who were already caring for children. And so now about 60% of the kids who are enrolled in UPK are actually enrolled in community organizations. And this is 2014, right? This is his big promise when he's running for mayor. He's going to get a millionaire's tax that he doesn't to get universal pre-K, which he does, and he then has to roll it out that first year for everyone. Exactly. Nobody thought it could happen as quickly as it did. Lo and behold, here we are. Um, But part of what made that possible was that the city um, relied on these community organizations, which were already opening and functioning in the community, and now about 60% of the kids in UPK are in community organizations. And the teachers who work there are not represented by the United Federation of Teachers, the UFT. So they don't technically work for the Department of Education. They work for the providers. They have a different union, if they're unionized at all. And those teachers make up to 60% less than the teachers who work in Department of Education schools. And so now we're looking at a potential strike. Do you have a rough idea of how many of those providers who aren't in the the Board of Educational System, how many of them are unionized? You said some are unionized. It's not clear to me. I know that about 7,500 teachers are represented by DC 1707 who work in community-based organizations. Okay. That might be who's striking, right? Those are the folks who have considered a strike. Although I have been hearing rumblings now from non-unionized folks that they are trying to also organize something that might be a little harder since there is no one organization that represents them. But those teachers uh, seem to be upset that they're being left out of this conversation. And the mayor and the chancellor are saying that these teachers for this universal pre-K aren't exactly public teachers? Yeah, so... I asked the school's chancellor, Richard Carranza, about the possibility of a strike not too long ago, and his response was, well, you know those aren't our teachers, which did not go over well with those teachers. So the way it works is that these organizations contract with the city to provide 
early childhood education services. And so most of the money is coming from public sources. The city is holding the purse strings, so to speak. And so, no, technically these teachers do not work for a public school or the Department of Education, but the programs that they work in are publicly funded. So the community-based teachers don't. The ones in the city-run pre-Ks, are they the same or is that different? And are these workforces similar? Are you looking at like sort of different groups of people in the community groups versus the uh, the city ones? So there are pre-K teachers who do work in public schools who are represented by the UFT. Right. So you have two groups of teachers doing the exact same job, earning vastly different salaries. And there is the argument that most of the women who are working in the community organizations are women of color, whereas within the UFT, only about 39% of teachers are people of color. And the head of DC 1707, which is the union that's considering a strike, they recently held a rally on the steps of City Hall, and Kim Medina, the leader of that union, said in no uncertain terms that this is a racist, misogynistic policy. It is clear to her what's going on here. And has anyone asked the mayor about these demographic divisions? Since, you know, obviously his rhetoric in 2013 was the tale of two cities. His rhetoric now is that there's enough money. It's just in different hands. He's always fancied himself as the champion of people of color and especially women of color because of his wife and his daughter, etc. So has the mayor commented on this at all? The city has not said much about this. Um, one of the mayor's head spokespeople just recently posted on Medium um, basically a defense of where we are into this point, but also acknowledging that, yes, something does has to be have to be done um, because it is such an unequal uh, landscape here. And so he hasn't directly commented on that, but I think that's what's most striking to the folks in D.C. 1707 is mm-hmm. that Um, The rhetoric doesn't seem to be matching up with, you know, the money. (laughs) Right. And are the qualifications different at all, like the credentialing you need for the the two programs? Ultimately— Or the two parts of the same program, I guess. Right. Ultimately, teachers have to have the same credentials, a master's degree, and state certification. You can start working in a community organization if you don't have that yet, as long as you're on a study plan to get there. The problem is twofold. One, it's really hard to earn this degree and certification while you're working full-time in one of these organizations Mm -hmm. because they, unlike the city-run pre-K programs, are full-day programs usually. So you might be working from 8.30 to 6 o'clock, and then you got to run to do a class from, I don't know, 8 to 10, and Mm -hmm. then be at school the next day to finish it. And, oh, by the way, it's pretty expensive, and you're not making a lot of money. And the city has tried to do things to help encourage, to help pay for people to get their certification, but it's really hard. Like what types of things have they done to help people get their certification? There's a career ladder now where if you agree to stay within the CBO, there are financial incentives to help pay mm-hmm. for your schooling. Um, but possibly it's not going to make it free and it's definitely not going to offset it substantially enough where I think a vast majority of people could take advantage of it. It's also not that widespread. It's not mm-hmm. a huge program, so it's hard to do. And The second issue is that um, – 
these community organizations say that they lose all of their certified teachers because if you have your master's and you're certified, you're going to go work for a Department of Education right. school where you can make a lot more money. How much more money are we talking about to start with? Thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. The starting salary in a community-based organization is $48,000 for a teacher with a master's in certification. At the DOE, it's $65,000. And that gap only grows over time. You could be working for eight years in a CBO and get about $2,000 raise. And if you're within the UFT, it just it grows exponentially. So I know that some of the community-based groups have been concerned about the city's expansion of its own learning centers, that this is sort of stepping on their turf, if you like. How do they feel about increasing pay for uh, teachers and administrators? Uh, is this something that they want, the... Um, the community organizations? Mm -hmm. Yes. They have been screaming for this as well because they can't keep their teachers. Uh, they keep leaving for the Department of Education. Meanwhile, you have to have certain levels of staffing per the Department of Health regulations and that sort of thing and also just because it's right. <laughs> um, so in order just to keep the doors open, these community organizations have really been struggling to, to keep their teachers what do the parents say? I mean, are they involved in this conversation at all? Or is this sort of at a level that's not necessarily including them just yet? A lot of these organizations have subsidized care. And a lot of that subsidized care includes a family component where they are working not only with the child, but with the whole family mm -hmm. to help move that child's education. And so there is a lot of interaction with teachers in, and families in these center-based programs. Some of the teachers are talking to their families and mm -hmm. telling them, you know, this is the situation we're in. And a lot of the centers are sort of warning families that there could be a strike. And so I'm assuming that that's going to strike up a lot of conversation. But I don't know how aware people are of, of this issue. These teachers, a lot of them do love what they do and they do feel a sense of commitment. And it's been going on for so long mm -hmm that there's also sort of a sense of, well, this is how it is. Um, so let me get this straight. <laughs> Women of color who are grossly underpaid compared to their colleagues doing a similar job in other facets of the city have been doing this for so long and will possibly continue to do it because they care about the job that they do and the families and the children that they support. I mean, this is sort of how we got into this mess. And this is an issue nationally, not just mm -hmm. in New York City. Early childhood education teachers are paid less. It's usually women. It's usually women of color. Um, I think it says a lot about the value of a woman's work, one. And two, how much we value early education mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. So UPK, it's a few different things, right? It's meant to give kids who hadn't gotten early education or in the system this boost start before they get to kindergarten. It's meant to provide employment, and it's meant to provide child care, which is like a really big boon for New Yorkers. And to give it to like the people who really need those things, the idea is you make it universal so that no one can complain, and it's free for everyone, whether, whether you need it or not. On, on those terms, does it appear that this is working so far? I know de Blasio, is he leaves and wants to talk about national stuff, wants to point to this as like a rousing success and proof that we can uh, bridge inequality and make a fairer city and country. Like, wh what are the results so far? 
Well, it's still sort of too early to tell. Um, the first round of kids who participated in UPK will actually be taking state tests this year. So if you want to measure the impacts of UPK in terms of test scores, we might know soon. But there's a lot of research that shows that later in life, access to quality early childhood education does pay off in a host of ways intergenerationally for families. There is a lot of argument about the effects of pre-K fading out, you know, throughout a child's educational career, but I think we can say pretty definitively that down the line it tends to make a difference for kids if it's high quality. Um, And I think it'll be a really long time before we see those results, but generally folks are really excited about the attention that's being paid to the early childhood years. And is this something like charter schools? I know the mayor has railed against charters, and you're describing a system where the city is contracting out for educational services while also providing some itself. It seems like there might be some uh, parallels there. It's definitely a hybrid system, and I think it's just how we do early ed in this country. Um, It's not integrated into the K-12 system. The city is sort of trying to change that right now, and I think that's important to understanding why there is this upheaval at this moment. The city is trying to bring all of its early education contracts under the Department of Education, and this is an attempt to sort of streamline birth to to graduation education services. Right now, all of these contracts are overseen by ACS, who has enough on their plate just Mm -hmm. looking out for child welfare. And So the operators and the teachers were really hoping that at this critical transition point, these contracts would include more funding for salary parity for teachers. The contracts are now out and people are getting ready to bid on them and there is no additional money Mm -hmm. for this. Also, the city is in the middle of negotiating its budget. The city council just put out its ask yesterday, and they have asked for um, money to be put into the budget for this issue of pay parity. They've asked that in the past. The difference this year is there's an actual number attached to it, $89 million. According to the Daycare Council of New York, which represents operators, that would cover increases for certified teachers, of which there are only about 3,000, because remember the centers are losing all their certified teachers to the DOE. And it would also increase salaries for center directors who also make significantly less than, for example, a principal or Mm -hmm. assistant principal. The qualifications for center directors isn't exactly the same as is the case for the teachers, but um, the operators want to make sure that the center directors are not making less than their teachers. So that $89 million includes a boost for center directors as well. And it also includes about $6 million for support staff workers because people like janitors, cooks, bookkeepers are also making significantly less in these community-based organizations. Is there anyone on the council who is, say, the champion for this legislation or this agenda? And is there a borough story going on? Do we see any sort of inequities across the five boroughs? I think this has a lot of support in the city council, um, and I think it's across boroughs. Mm -hmm. I mean, when... When DC 1707 rallied on the steps of City Hall, there were council people from every single borough Uh represented there. Um, And you have to realize, too, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but within each borough, each borough has its own pockets of Mm -hmm. affluence and disadvantage. And so I think it really is just a universal. Mm -hmm. 
issue across the city. It seems to me that a lot of the mayor's rhetorical attention has been focused on the SHSATs, the, uh, the, the test for the eight elite high schools that he says should be changed, but hasn't changed, including for the five he could change it for any time he wanted, um, which covers a pretty narrow group of uh, public high school students. Six percent. Right. And then pre-K, um, and then that he's expressed less interest at points in the uh, in sort of outcomes in the broader system. Or that's been, I think, the critique from uh, from political opponents. Is that where his energy has been focused? And, and are those sort of the right points to, uh, to put emphasis if you're trying to uh, both help lead the system and shift rhetoric and like sort of the range of what's politically possible? Yeah, so when it comes to pre-K, I, I think the mayor is really banking on this being the great equalizer um, so that we don't have problems later on uh, in places like the specialized high schools. But yeah, that that is a huge argument right now when it comes to de Blasio's um, education agenda that we're focusing on sort of these very narrow points when the problem is much greater and there are things that are actually well within his power to do that have gone untouched. Even as his chancellor has no problem calling out specific policies that he, he believes are contributing to segregation. He seems to have a problem doing anything about them. The mayor or the chancellor? Both. I mean, ultimately, the chancellor resp- you know, works for the mayor. And so, yes, that is his great challenge is to convince his boss to do anything about this. Um, there is a lot of work going on. I think I think there are lots of different ways to look at this. There is a lot of work going on that wasn't before. There is an advisory group that is looking at this issue. Who's Whether the, their recommendations the go anywhere, it's a very very big group of about 40 folks representing all kinds of um, interests. It's a pretty diverse group. They recently released a set of recommendations. It's been about a month. There's been no response mm-hmm. from the mayor or the chancellor. Um, but you know, on the other hand, the chancellor has been here for a year, and this problem took a very long time to create. And I do think there are arguments for treading um, delicately here, not just for fear of of white flight and um, white folks pulling out of the school system, but a lot of people of color are wary of integration efforts too because a lot of times the burden of that has fallen on their children mm-hmm. having to go to a school that's outside of their neighborhood or a place that's hostile um, to their kids. I mean, just look at the specialized high schools debate and the things that are said in public about the quality of the school suffering if we let in more black and Hispanic students. So I think I think that, <laughs> that conversation <laughs> never ends. It's, it's- as someone who's in higher ed. <laughs> That's a conversation that we have when it comes to admitting students of color at the collegiate level and also faculty of color. It's like, well, we don't want to change the standards and the quality and all these, I wouldn't say thinly racist statements because they're not that thin. They're pretty blatant to a lot of people who are listening. Well, I've got a question for you, though, because you've been you've been working on this and you've been talking to a lot of people across the city about, I would say, this quasi-crisis. From your vantage point, what do you think is a realistic path to sort of begin to kind of detangle some of this quandary? 
what would you think would be a realistic place to start to try and come up with some sort of solution, having talked to all the different players in this in this process? Can you fix education right now? Please? Right. That's essentially what I'm asking. It's not even 11 o'clock. I feel like you could do that. <laughs> sure. We've got three minutes here, left. The problem is if we fix education, I don't know what Chalkbeat is going to write about. But oh, so basically <laughs> this is like the big Chalkbeat conspiracy? This is, this is my job security. <laughs> no. Um, so, look, you pay for what you value, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And the mayor has said that he really cares about early childhood education and that he thinks this is going to be a great equalizer. And guess what? It costs money. And when you – I mean in the grand scheme of things, $83 million this year to raise teachers and center directors' salaries. I mean the Department of Education's budget is something like $30 billion. It's not that yeah. much money. Right, right. And UPK costs about $900 million. And this was supposed to be paid for by the millionaire's tax, right, that the the mayor did not get. Uh, I just remember when he campaigned in 2013, he talked about universal pre-K, which a lot of people were excited about. And he said, don't worry, we can pay for it because we'll tax all the millionaires. So he got universal pre-K but did not necessarily get to tax the millionaires. Right. And I mean this just goes to how we fund early education in this country. It's such a mishmash of – different sources. I mean, there's federal, there's state, there's local. The city does put in, you know, its own money towards this. But there's no one person who's in charge. There's no one source. There's no one well to go to. And so it's just sort of this quilt that we've thrown together. Which is Mm -hmm. crazy, right? De Blasio runs for mayor by saying, I would like to be the mayor and I promise that the state will pay for this program I'd like to create. A lot of the state is New York City, but, you know, it's not actually up to him. And, you know, also speaking of valuing money, he says for the price of a good cup of coffee a day, we can have this, which is a little remarkable. It just you put your money where your values are. And early ed folks say that, look, it will pay off in the long run in terms of, you know, if your kids don't need remediation later in school or, you know, you have fewer kids um, referred for special education services because you've caught issues early. You know, there's a lot of research that suggests that actually putting in the money up front will pay off later on when it comes to education. So. And lastly, if there is this one-day strike, and that's what they're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is going to sort of shock parents? Like, um, I remember when Farina called a snow day and then it was sunny, you know, like the city was up in arms because, you know, you you, got to go to work. And, like, suddenly your kid's like, that's nice, Mom. Like, like, I'm going to come with you. You know, I've been reading a lot about this fight that has been going on for a long time and – Actually, DC 1707 has gone on strike before, and there have been moments where people have felt optimistic that now's the time that this is going to finally get addressed, and here we are. Um, and so I would like to think that something like a strike would be a shock to the system, but... But would a one-day strike do it? I mean, would it need to be we strike until the city understands that we need equity? I think the feeling right now is that a one-day strike is probably not going to accomplish much. Even the teachers who I've spoken to have said, well, it's worth a shot. Uh, But I don't think anyone is expecting it to move heaven and earth. And I think part of it is, look, the teachers are in a really tough position because 
they realize that this is going to be a huge strain on families, even just for one day. And in a lot of cases, we're talking about really needy families who are relying on subsidized care and people who have to go to work. And so I think they recognize that. But on the other hand, they have their own families to take care of. And so... I don't know. In some ways, it feels like this moment is different because we have seen teacher uprisings across the country and they have been successful in extracting um, concessions from state and local governments. Um, And so I think teachers feel that public opinion is on their side. We also have a mayor who is potentially running for president, potentially on this very issue. And so it would look very bad to have teachers on strike at home and For that reason, maybe the city is finally going to move on this. The city council seems to really be paying attention. They have been in the past, but now, you know, there are specific budget asks. Could this be the moment? Maybe, but we've been here before. I'm curious because it's also, it's marginalized women of color making the demands, which, listen, we know women of color have been keeping this democracy alive for a few centuries now, but this is now... What they're asking for is something for themselves, not for the greater good. I mean, I would argue that education is for the greater good in the long run, but I mean, this is a very clear ask, which is money in my own pocket, which I'm curious to see if the mayor resonates with or if he just resonates with it in theory. Right. It's hard to go out and make the argument that we're building the fairest big city in America when you have this specific workforce saying that they've been marginalized and and ignored, so... Very last question. The UFT, which represents the the public school teachers, who these teachers want parity with, where are they at on this, speaking of equity? Mm. I haven't heard much from the UFT. I think they're supportive of their unionized uh, brothers and sisters. I think the CSA, which represents um, principals within the school system and also uh, has a connection to the center director's They're also supportive. One of um, some CSA representatives were at the rally at City Hall. And so I think that there's general consensus that something should be done. Um, The question is whether the political will and the money is there to do it. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Everyone go to Chalkbeat and read more. We really appreciate it. Thank Thank you so much. To the other Christina. <laughs> You're the second Christina in a row to join us, so we're just going to keep the theme for the, for the spring. That's it's a good The name. spring of Christina's. And like everyone it. go and support Chalkbeat, please. Thank you. F-A-Q. So I once saw an ad for Jews for Jesus looking for a social manager, and I was like, this might be too good to pass on. But I did pass. And then I wasn't tempted again until I saw an ad for the Knife of Aristotle looking for a journalist to come to Albany several days later for a 30-day training. They can't pay you, but they don't charge you to become eligible to write remotely on media ethics because they'd crack the science of them. That's worth running away and starting a new life for, I thought, but I didn't, and that turned out to be good because Knife of Aristotle turned out to be a spinoff of Nexium, the crazed sex cult slash pyramid scheme that is now the subject of numerous uh, 
federal trials. Um, one small television star has just pled guilty in one of those trials, and here to discuss it is Quartz reporter Victoria Bekempis on the phone with uh, with producer Alex Brooklyn. I'll pass it over to them. This is In the Courts with Victoria Bekempis. Hi, Alex. Today I have uh, what might be the food poisoning. So I'm just alone in my house talking into a microphone like a crazy woman. And Victoria has done me the kind favor of calling in so that she's not exposed to my um, plague. Um, I'm not going to make a joke about exposing. Okay. (laughs) But what we should make a joke about. No, I'm just kidding. No jokes. No jokes today. (laughs) Um, Well, what is going on in the New York courts? You have been busy this week. You have been running all around. You've had pieces in Vulture and some pretty crazy shits going on. Why don't you why don't you run it down for us? What's the biggest thing in the New York courts this week? Well, uh, speaking of that shit, um, you know, you you can't mention court's craziness this week without discussing the Nexium sex cult case. Now, um, remind so, me, what is the Nexium sex cult case? Sex cult case. Yes. So, backing up a little bit, there was at one point this group near Albany called Nexium. Uh, and so, Nexium uh, purported to be this self help organization. And, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office out in Brooklyn is claiming, hey, Nexium is. A, worked like a pyramid scheme that people who joined this could ascend the ranks by recruiting more people. And B, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office out in Brooklyn is saying, hey, there was this secretive sect in Nexium called DOS. I'm not sure if it's pronounced DOS or DOS, so I'm just going to roll with it. All right. Um, and that DOS effectively acted as this sex cult. And Keith Raniere founder of Nexium allegedly headed this, you know, sex thing where there was a master slave relationship within this DOS uh, secretive group. So Ranieri was supposedly uh, a master and, um, were there other masters or just him? Yes. Yes. Here's where it gets really interesting is that Alice Mack of the, you know, Smallville show is said to have been like basically like right below him in this hierarchy and that she worked to recruit slaves and like compel them effectively to have sex with Ranieri by collecting, you know, uh, what was called collateral. Collateral could be embarrassing information, new photographs. And so, uh, you know, putting prosecutors deal, you know, the way it worked is like, okay, well, if you don't want to go along with this, we will, we will dump this collateral and embarrass you. But what was in it? Like originally what was in it for the women? Like what is Nexium? Do they sell like hair products or is it like Amway or? They had, you know, um, peddled these costly self-help classes. And so within Nexium, DOS was supposed to be this, you know, a female empowerment group and it was supposed to be all women and prosecutors say that uh, Mac deceived people to get into DOS by telling them, you know, it was all women and hiding the fact that Ranieri was involved. 
So fast forwarding to what went so down it's like on Monday. A, so it's like a female empowerment self-help group that turns out to be like, we're going to blackmail you for things that you're secretly ashamed of. And by the way, you should be slave, sex slaves to this dude you didn't even know about. Am I getting it right? Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty close. Um, you know, but, but, you know, fast forwarding to Monday, this is, this is when things really take a turn and everything gets put together. So just a few weeks before the Maxine trial is supposed to start, Mac uh, shows up to court on Monday in an unexpected, uh, you know, development in terms of timing. She pleads guilty in this case. Uh, she pleaded guilty to two federal counts. And the two federal counts were racketeering conspiracy and racketeering. Uh, she faces up to 20 years on each count. So staring down serious time, she's not going to get 40 years in federal lockup. But, you know, but that's what serious that's, charges. That's the maximum sentence that she could get? Yeah, that's the maximum also, sentence. I read in your Vulture piece something about she's not being charged with – is anyone being charged with human trafficking? They think it's actually sex trafficking. Um, Keith Raniere. Okay, yeah, he's it's sex trafficking for him. Uh, he's charged with that. He faces, you know, a bunch of charges. Most recently, a child pornography possession charge. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff going on. And Allison um, Mackey, if I remember correctly, was the kind of like brainy newspaper high school newspaper reporter that was friends with Clark Kent on Smallville. Uh, yes. Okay. Has she done anything except, uh, uh, extort sexual favors from women via blackmail since, uh, Smallville? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, in court, she said that she had been involved with Nexium for a decade that she got into it, you know, because she wanted to better herself and was looking for something. Um, and then, you know, uh, intimated that, you know, when she was involved with it, she thought it was cool and, you know, and helping and empowering people. And then, you know, she turned out to be wrong. Um, so in terms of, you know, what she was doing, you know, other than being a Nexium, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, there wasn't a lot of description in court about that, you know, she just you know, said she was sorry repeatedly. A week before, uh, she, you know, was at court and uh, another twist. Uh, Seagram's heiress, uh, Claire, the, the Wicker Dynasty, the heiress of uh, Bronfman, she's also charged in the case. Oh. And when they saw each other in the hallway, they had this, like, you know, lengthy BFF kind of interaction. They were hugging each other really tightly and you know, kissing each other on the cheeks and, you know, um, kind of like letting their hands linger in each other's. Um. Well, you've been in a, like a cult or I don't know if we're allowed to call it that. You've been in a sex cult for that long with someone, you know, you might you might have like a, a very deep connection, very deep connection with them. Um, and, and what about the Seagram's chick? She's going to be charged, too. Well, she's also charged in the case, and um, as of recording time, um, you know, uh, she's uh, still headed to trial. Very preliminary stages of jury selection uh, started on Monday afternoon, just uh, shortly after Mac pleaded guilty. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's happening. You described her as wearing very casual dress. Yeah, um, I mean... 
Uh, full disclosure, I am. Uh, I tend to be dressed very comfortably when I am out and about, including in court. Uh, but, you know, she had these dark, relaxed fit pants on, you know, this comfy-looking, you know, creamy sweater, um, had a bun, uh, some leopard sneakers. Uh, I believe them to be Superga's. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, fashionable, yeah, comfortable. And uh, she and her lawyers didn't say anything as they left court. Well, I figure if you're already pleading guilty, there's no reason to dress up. Yeah, and, you know, she did, uh, you know, say some stuff in court uh, about her emotions and what she was going through. You know, perhaps one of the most poignant things she said was, I have come to the conclusion that I must take full responsibility for my conduct. And that's why I'm pleading guilty today. And again, in terms of exactly how she, you know, went astray and whatever happened, you know, the chronology is not, you know, was not 100% revealed in court. Um, but she did say a few things to the effect of, I joined Nexium to find purpose. I truly believed I found a group of individuals who believed as I did. I believed Keeper Neary's intentions were to help people. I was wrong. So, you know, we, we know that she now realizes something uh, was awry. Uh, but as far as how she went from joining this group to, you know, the progression of things, uh, as of this moment, Ranieri's, there's still going to be a trial, um, you know, for Ranieri and uh, Bronfman and, uh, you know, Kathy Russell, um, was another co-defendant. So, I mean, stuff is going to get, you know, dragged out during this trial. We might get more answers to these questions. I would expect that we would. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen. But I, I surmise that we're going to find out some more details about how things worked, how people were allegedly, you know, recruited, how they were moved from being, you know, members and wanting to learn about self-help to something much darker, uh, you know, I think that we're going to learn more, uh, you know, in the course of trial. And again, Allison, just to be clear, Allison Mack, she pleaded guilty. She admitted to something. But, you know, the people who are going to be on trial soon, uh, all the stuff that they've been accused of, there's still legally allegations. So I just want to make that very clear. Allison Mack admitted to doing this some stuff. But as far as Ramiri and, and others who it's still, have not pleaded go, right. still allegations. Still allegations. Yeah. Um, okay, so what else is going on? You had two other things for us that's going on in the New York courts that were of, uh, of some interest. Definitely, definitely some interesting things. Um, you know, remember that case we talked about a while ago involving Rod Coughlin? He was this, you know, kind of uh, wayward, you know, investor who with the idea of being a professional backgammon player. He had been accused and went through a trial for uh, killing his estranged wife and trying to pass it off as an accidental drowning in her bathtub. Right. Well, he had been, you know, convicted two weeks ago, and he was sentenced today, and I confirmed with the DA's office, um, so wasn't in the courtroom, that he has been sentenced from... 25 years to life in prison for murdering his wife, uh, Shelly Benishevsky-Coplin. So this brings an end, you know, for now, for now. to this uh, cold case um, that really uh, had uh, captivated um, a lot of people because it was 
so grisly and so bizarre. Um, and last but certainly not least, we have something that the New York Post had a fucking field day with. You know, they had all their cool puns come trotted out for the article on this one, uh, from dumb fellas to uh you know what dumb fellas was really the one that oh dumb fellas to odd father and um and i just i just can't wait to get your take on this so so tell us what happened with uh the son of the crime boss vincent the chin giganti and if everyone remembers him he's the guy that wandered around greenwich village in a bathrobe talking crazy during his trial Yes. So uh, here's what happened in court today. So Vinny the Chin's son, Vincent Esposito, um, he was busted last year in an an union extortion scheme. And Esposito is, you know, it's an important important thing to mention. Uh, Esposito was actually Vinny the Chin's love child uh, with... um, you know, the mobster's longtime mistress, who also had the same name as the Chin's wife. So I guess, you know, it kind of makes things easier, you know, if you have a You never you never forget the name, you never call you're never exactly. like you never call someone the wrong name in bed. It's that's yeah. really that's really the ideal, I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um make things, you know, easier around the holidays. Um anyway uh, so yeah, Esposito pleaded guilty in court today to one count relating to this racketeering scheme, and uh, you know, in, you know, the maximum for this count, um, which is participating in a racketeering conspiracy, the maximum sentence that he could get, again, technically speaking, uh, twenty years in federal lockup under his. Deal, he's going to be getting 24 to 30 months in prison under the deal. Now, this isn't binding. Um, you know, a judge in theory could say no, yes, you know, whatever. But that's that's what prosecutors are going to recommend for him. Now, um, you know, the thing that's really going to sting, though, is that Esposito is going to have to cough up. Uh, more than $3.8 million to the government. Like, that's, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. But then again, you know, he and his mom live in this, uh, you know, beautiful townhouse on the Upper East Side. So, you know, I don't know if they're going to get, you know, home equity loan or whatever, but, um, (laughs) you know, it's going to hurt. But, uh, you know, will he be able to do it? Yeah, I'm sure. And um, what was this that they found? Uh, they found some paper that he had written down all the maid dudes. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. If, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Ah, the it says uh, according to the New York Post article, um, authorities found two unlicensed guns, a set of brass knuckles, and more than one million dollars in cash inside the twelve million dollar East Seventy Seventh Street townhouse uh this is by priscilla de gregory and bruce golding then they say and this is where they use the dumb fella that caught my eye there was an actual uh quote an actual list of the made members of la cosa nostra the prosecutor said 
The dumb fella move, thank you, New York Post, harks back to the handwritten two-page list of mobsters kept by the fellow mob scion, John Jr. Gotti. Um, so apparently that was found, too. I love dumb fellas. Thank you, New York Post. Who, I, I love dumb fellas, and I also you? love I also love Oddfather. Oddfather. To describe Vinita Chin, because, you know, he had a, you know, he had some odd behavior. Um, so, I mean, it makes sense. There's the Oddfather and his dumb fella son. Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think's going to happen? So, when does he get sentenced? How does this unfold? The, the, the court appearance itself was relatively unexciting. Eventful, uh, the court appearance. Uh, you know, he when he was making his admission, it was a statement, you know, pre prepared statement, and you know, stuck to legalese. You know, he knew what he was doing was, you know, quote wrong and illegal. Quote the kind of uh, kind of funny thing that happened after you know the court proceeding ended was that uh, Esposito and two women who I believe were, are, you know, are his relatives. They, you know, were trying to, you know, keep the, you know, I think there were three or four reporters out of the elevator. And uh, when uh, when I, I was like, hey, you know, this is a public elevator. Anyone could get in here. They, you know, got out in a huff. Apparently this guy who's accused, well, who admitted to, you know, being in a strong arming scheme is, you know, afraid of being in an elevator with some reporters. So, Well, I mean, Victoria, also- I'm not going to lie. You're pretty intimidating. I know he threatened, quote, force and violence to make victims, quote, cough up cash, according again to the New York Post. God, they are on fire today. But if I were him, even with all my force and violence and odd father dad, I would still be intimidated by you. What is it about me, Alex? Why am I so scary? Because you're so smart and beautiful. Oh. <laughs> well, if you remember the sound that just happened, I think that's my phone dying. It's been great having you. Hey, thank you for having me on. And uh, always a pleasure to talk to you and, you know, feel better soon. Thank Follow you. the bland food diet. It helps. I had some rye bread. I did have some chocolate. I had some rye bread and some chocolate and some hummus. So we'll see. You know, I'll report back next week. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is brought to you with support from Civil, a blockchain company working to remake the economics of journalism, and also from listeners like you. We are hosted at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU Silver School of Social Work, where we recorded this week. And a special thank you to Christina Vega of Chalkbeat. And also, thank you to the jack of all sounds, Adam Kamara. Until next week, goodbye. News. 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 New York City. F. Thank you. All right, rolling on the. Uh, oh, get the get the mic in position uh, for the transition. Hello, good to see you again. Likewise. Please, cosmopolitan. No. Mhm. What's going on? I'm ready.